The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. As you look to your bulletin, uh, you will see two different readings this morning. And as you look further ahead, you'll see the name of our sermon title this morning as we are in now this eighth week in this series of hard questions. Um, And as we are approaching this, Uh, What we're looking at today is almost always on the top of everyone's list of hard questions, which is actually why we're going to be taking this in two parts. Uh, Lord willing, we're going to try to unpack this in two parts this week and next week, so you'll hear me several times say next week, next week, next week. Uh, But this week, uh, we're going to begin looking at the question of, if God... Why evil? And all manner of associated questions with it. If God, why evil? So as we're thinking about that, uh, do open your Bible to the book of Job. Uh, We're going to be reading uh, from Job 28 and also from Romans 8 this morning. And we are going to read those sequentially uh, and uh, refer back to them together. But uh, those are our two scripture passages that we're looking at this morning. You can find the page numbers there uh, in the Bible in the Purack. Uh, But I want to just get right to introducing this to you because uh, this issue, this question of evil, suffering, pain, injustice, and all manner of things with it um, uh, is oftentimes framed as the problem of evil because uh, for so many the existence of evil in the world is, for for many people, the, the final reason why they would choose to reject belief in God. It's all the reason that they need to reject faith. They say, since there are so many cases of significant pain and suffering both in the world and historically, and if there was a God who was good, He would certainly be able to prevent it. But the fact that the evil is not prevented means that He is either not good or not powerful enough to prevent it or For some people concluding, he just doesn't exist at all. That because evil is in the world, that this disproves the existence of God, if God was a God who could do something about it. The problem of evil in the world, whether moral evil, namely willfully caused by humans like murder, rape, theft, etc., or natural evil, harm caused by impersonal forces of nature like earthquakes, tornadoes, plagues, and other forms, is oftentimes presented as the closing argument to defend unbelief. And that is why, for many people, at the end of the day, this is actually not an intellectual or philosophical or theological matter. It's just a matter of lived life in a world that is oftentimes filled with pain, suffering, and, and evil, which is why this issue causes such broad appeal for many people to come to the conclusion that God Himself does not exist because so much evil does exist in the world. So what do we have to say to it? See, this is a hard question. All these questions have been hard. This is among the hardest, we could say. Or better, we should say, uh, what do the Scriptures have to say about all of this? Now, there's, there's many places that we could go. I'm going to be very selective this morning. What do the Scriptures have to say in response to this accusation? And how can we help those people to reconcile the realities of their lives, namely our friends, our neighbors, or our own lives, as we feel deeply that there is real evil in the world. Real evil, 
that makes us turn inside out, weep, makes us want to gnash our teeth and tear our clothes in angst? How do we reconcile that with the reality that we believe in one true living and almighty God who rules all things by His sovereign will and upholds all things by His wise providence? How do these things go together? Now, before we read, before we pray, issuing this pastoral note that, uh, that, that for everybody, uh, especially for those who, who want rather this to stay in the theoretical, uh, it's not theoretical. This is all deeply personal because it touches every single one of us. This is the shared universal experience of human life in a fallen world. If God is good, why did this happen? And you will fill in the this with your life's experience and your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers and your classmates and the other kids on your sports teams and activities and clubs, they will fill in an answer to that statement. If God is really good, why did this happen? And why did He let it happen? And maybe He didn't because He isn't really there. Some people conclude. Uh, to this, we want to speak gently, especially to uh, tender conscience Christian believers for whom this is causing them to waver on the precipice of faith and unbelief. This is not theoretical. It's deeply personal. So we begin by looking at some of Job's words and then moving toward a conclusion in Paul's words in Romans. But all of these are, of course, God's words. So let's pray and ask His blessing as we search out this question today. Great God, we pause now with Your Word open before us because... We are a people that need to hear you speak because our lives are filled with so many questions and problems and so many pains and sufferings, experiencing evil in manifold ways in this world. And so, Lord, we look to you and we ask, why? And and what shall we say and uh, to what can we cling to when we feel like we are uh, merely treading uh, water in an ocean of suffering? Lord, where, where can we turn? And we turn to you. So, Lord, by your Spirit, speak to us in your living word, that which is powerful and active and able to divide our hearts, reveal our intentions, and to bring us to truth and peace. So, Lord, speak to us now in the power of your word and give our hearts confidence, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us read, first of all, now from the Old Testament, Job 28, uh, beginning at verse 12. Job 28 at verse 12 to the end of the chapter. And then in the New Testament, this is the Word of God, Job 28, verse 12. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me, and the sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed at its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in the precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it within our ears. God understands the way to it, and He knows its place. 
For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Now into the New Testament. Romans 8, so page 944. Romans 8, at verse 18, the Word of God continues. Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. Uh, do uh, keep, keep something there in Romans and go back to Job. Uh, because we're going to be looking in these two places as we establish some, some context for this question. Again, that we're asking across two weeks' time, uh, if God is good, why is there evil in the world? If God is powerful, why is there evil in the world? Why can we reconcile, or how can we, and is it possible to reconcile the realities of the existence of evil and the belief in uh, the God of Scripture, the triune God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? We could begin uh, asking questions along with Job. Uh, Job is asking here about wisdom and understanding and really indeed how to make sense of the world, which is what the context of his questions are asking concerning wisdom. And Job is a man who suffers greatly, who experiences great evil in his life. We're going to be looking at Job a bit more in some detail even next week. But notice how he's asking the same question at Job 28, verse 12 and verse 20. Where can I make sense of the world? Where shall wisdom be found? Verse 12. And in verse 20, from where then does wisdom come? How can I make sense of the world? And the reason why Job was asking that question is because he was himself experiencing the weight of sorrow, suffering, sighing, evil, real weight in his life, saying, how can I make sense of this experience of life in this fallen world? How can I make sense of it? And where he asks the question, where can it be found from verse 12 through 20, he's asking, is it here? Is it there? Is it in this value? Is it in this worth? Is it in this price? Is it in this jewel? And he answers again and again and again, no, it's not there. It's hidden from me if I look there. It's hidden if I look over here. It's hidden if I look to the sea and if I look to the sky and if I look to the earth, if I look to the plants, if I look to the gold, if I look to the trees, it's hidden from me. I can't see it. I can't make sense of the world and all of the suffering as I look to these various places. Uh, Job here reads so much like the book of Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? How can we make sense of life in this fallen world? Where do we make sense of any of it? And, and as he asks these various questions, comes then in verse 23 to say simply, God knows that just because we cannot make sense of the world and just because we don't, do not know God's purpose does not mean that He doesn't have a purpose, that God is not obligated towards divine disclosure of every hidden and secret purpose of His will. And as Job is frustratingly ans- asking the question, how can I make sense of this world? He comes to the right place to simply say again in verse 23, God knows. 
God understands the way to it and He knows its place. God knows the way to wisdom because He has established wisdom and understands how wisdom works in the world that He created. God reveals to humans the essence of what people need to know about life. Even with all of the experience of suffering, namely, as He says in verse 28, that for all that we experience in this world and all of its weight, all of this suffering and sighing, that we must know to fear the Lord because that is wisdom in verse 28. The starting point of wisdom is trust, humble obedience, reverence to and faith in the one true and living God. Not by investigating the universe, not by looking to astrological signs and eight balls and any number of different things to try to seek out the true meaning of life even in the midst of its sorrow and suffering and sighing. And Job's questions give us a helpful context and background for this very personal issue as we face the reality of a sorrow and sighing and evil and suffering in the world. How does the Christian faith respond to this most difficult question? Job helps us, but he doesn't exhaustively answer the question. He takes us in the right direction, to be sure, to say, God knows and God has hidden and secret purposes that are not disclosed to all of us. God knows what he is doing. But how do we interact with the issue, especially as our friends and our neighbors ask us the questions, especially as we ourselves live life in this fallen world with all of its sufferings and, and, and simply saying, well, God knows and that's it at the end of the day. And you say, yes, but I want more. I want more of an explanation than that. I want to be able to say something and draw a conclusion and, and be helpful to my own heart and be helpful to my neighbors and my family members and my co-workers. What do we do? How has the Christian faith responded to this most difficult question? Well, I want to acknowledge to you that explanations vary from tradition to tradition, to be sure, different Christian traditions, but they can all be grouped together in what we call in the Christian faith theodicy. Theodicy. That is a Latin word coming from the combination of two words, theos and dikaios, God and just. Theodicy is explanations, justifications, reasons for suffering, reasons for evil. When in the Christian tradition we talk about theodicy, we're talking about reasons and explanations for why evil exists in the world and God exists in the world, and how these things can both be true at the same time. An explanation for God's existence and the purpose in the midst of suffering is what we call theodicy. So let's dive into these realities of theodicies first with a couple of non-starters. And when I say non-starters, I mean ground that we will not concede and ground that we will not grant on these points of arguments. And the first thing that is a non-starter, the first thing that we will not concede is when someone says, God doesn't exist. God doesn't exist because evil exists. And to that, the Christian church says, I will not grant you that. I will not grant you that. Why? And for many people, questions of theodicy does lead them to this very place. You know what? The reality of evil makes me conclude that there is no God. It can't be possible that this be true in the world and God be benevolent and powerful. But people who come to the conclusion from the reality of evil to making the conclusion that God doesn't exist at all, that actually doesn't help them at all. And it's actually intellectually deeply unsatisfying if they'll think about it for a, a moment. If God doesn't exist, 
If there is no God, then there is no moral basis to conclude that anything is good or bad. If there is no God, then there is no moral governor of the universe to say this is what good is and this is what bad is. If there is no God, you cannot conclude something is good and something is evil because you will be making a reference to a universal reality of goodness that you're saying doesn't actually exist. If there is no God, you can't say anything's bad and anything is good. You're left with something that's just entirely natural and subjective, the strong devouring the weak. If you reject God, you have no reasonable moral ground for outrage in the face of anything because the response simply is, well, that's just the way the world works. Tough. Germany in the Third Reich was exerting its strength. And who are you to say it's wrong for them to do so because to them it was right. And there is no such a thing as right or wrong ultimately if there is no God. That is a deeply intellectually unsatisfying reality, isn't it? That can't be true. So we do not grant that God does not exist simply because there is evil in the world, because in order for us to conclude that evil exists, it is with reference to an ultimate moral law giver, namely God himself. We do not grant that God does not exist. We also do not grant, and we will not concede this point, that some people accuse God of being the author of evil. That all of this is, as they might say, God's fault. In fact, our confession of faith explicitly says God is not the author of evil. Sin enters the world through human disobedience, bringing corruption and a fall. Sin is in the world because of human disobedience. God is not the author of this. But then the question comes that follows, but why did He allow it? Why did God create a world in which these Potential realities would come into being such that the world would fall, evil would come into the world, and sin would reign through evil. Why? Why does this exist? So we will not grant that God does not exist. We will not grant that God is the author of evil. But what we will say is that by allowing evil, and we use the language of permission, by allowing evil, God attains greater good than would be possible apart from the evil existing. That God has a higher purpose and a higher end and a greater good that is attained because of the reality of evil in the world through which God is working out a purpose. That is how Paul argues in Romans 8. Paul argues from a place of saying the reality of suffering in the present world does not deny the reality that there is moving toward a goal and a purpose and an ends that justify the reality of this present suffering. Go back to Romans 8, as Paul says in Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us are there present sufferings? The answer is, of course there are. Is life often hard? Of course it is. Paul says, I grant these present sufferings, but I'm drawing you out, Paul is saying, speaking the inspired word, that there is more than just 
the present reality of suffering, there is a future glory. The problem is that when we are in the midst of present suffering, it's hard to see the future glory. When everything is raining around us, it's hard for us to imagine that there is still light beyond the dark clouds. But that doesn't mean that it's not there. That just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not present. Paul goes on to argue how God uses our present sufferings in the purpose of attaining that future glory. He'll say this throughout Romans 8, and we'll look a bit more at it next week, but it's very much the way uh, the the wonderful author C.S. Lewis explains it. He has a little book that he calls The Problem of Pain, which is this very thing that we're talking about, the problem of evil, the problem of suffering, the problem of pain. He says it like this. You and I often ignore pleasure, but pain insists on being attended to. He says it very helpfully like this. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. In other words, C.S. Lewis is explaining in what Paul is arguing here that suffering is often the way God gets your attention. Gets your attention. Because you and I both know that the best lessons that we learn are oftentimes the hardest lessons that we have learned because they're the ones that stick. Sometimes suffering in our life, sometimes evil, is a consequence of sin. A result of wicked or sinful decisions that we have made that brings about some form of consequence. And by means of this suffering, God intends to form us by way of discipline, just like a parent does with their children for the purposes of maturity, helping them to learn that if you go that way, there is a consequence. I don't want you to continue that way. You must learn. Sometimes suffering is a consequence for sin. But sometimes suffering is a tool of sanctification, making you more holy, making you more like Jesus a refinement process that Paul is illustrating in Romans 8. What this produces is a greater degree of holiness and a greater degree of sincerity, a greater degree of obedience in walking with Jesus. As we heard from the high schoolers a couple weeks ago, this was the theme of their mission trip, that God forges us through suffering for the purposes of sanctification and growth and holiness. Sometimes suffering is a consequence for sin. Sometimes it's a tool of sanctification. And sometimes suffering is a test of our faith. Think about Abraham in Genesis 22 and the offering of his son Isaac. Suffering has different purposes, but it is never without purpose. God never does anything that he does purposeless, including the experience of sorrow, suffering, sighing, dying, evil in this world. And again, next week we're going to be looking more at the stories of both Job and Joseph. But this morning we'll only look to one other place, and that's to Jesus. Where else do you look? Where else should you look but to Jesus? And when you look to Jesus, as you and I as Christian believers need to be constantly calling our friends and neighbors to do so, considering Jesus, thinking about Jesus, have you thought about Jesus? What about Jesus? It is down this road that we should go. When you look to Jesus and you are interacting with the reality of evil and suffering, there is a response that you cannot have. And when you look to Jesus, the response 
that you cannot have is that you cannot say that God does not care about your experience of evil and suffering in the world. Yes, of course God cares. God cares so much that He has entered into and identified in the most excruciating way imaginable the very problem of evil itself because God has, in the flesh, come down in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ not just to experience evil, but to take it upon Himself. To literally feel the full weight of evil upon Himself. Because to the person who says, God is against me because of my experience of this evil, Paul says in Romans 8, God is not against you. He is for you in Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus Christ. So you who are asking the question, as I experience evil in the world, how can I know that God is for me? How can I know that God has not abandoned me? How can I know that God is not punishing me? And the answer is that Paul gives in Romans 8 is that because He gave His Son for you, He cares about your experience of sorrow and suffering and sighing in this wicked, fallen world. That's why He sent Jesus for you. To reverse the weight and curse of the fall. To deliver you from evil. If you look to Jesus, you see that God cares so deeply that He goes all the way to the cross to prove it. There are things that we can say in response to this question of if God, why evil, that we call theodicies that are explanations. Namely, that God has a greater purpose. God has a greater good that we can look to and see what He is doing But there are also ways of answering the questions that we call inscrutability that we'll be looking at next week. But for now, and for now, what we need to remember is that if you are looking at the issue of evil in the world and are tempted to say that God cannot possibly exist if this evil exists in the world, if you're looking to Jesus, you'll see that there is a satisfying answer to the question, why is this true? And the answer is, because God Himself has undertaken to reverse the curse. That through Jesus Christ, all this evil is reversed and ultimately undone. Ultimately explained. Ultimately accounted for. Ultimately given answer for in every respect. Speaking of C.S. Lewis, we can also speak of one of his favorite friends, J.R. Tolkien, and who at the end of uh, one of his most famous works, Uh, one of the most important characters, I think, in The Lord of the Rings, Samwise Gamgee, who's a friend of Frodo, and they're on their quest to destroy the ring of power and bring an end to the tyranny of darkness. And at the lowest moment, Samwise Gamgee asked this question, is everything sad going to become untrue? Is everything sad going to become untrue because of what's happening? And the answer is yes. Everything sad does become untrue one day through Jesus Christ, through what He has done. So as we consider this question both this week and next week, we're looking to Jesus who gives us a satisfying explanation that even though we don't have an answer to everything, by looking at Him we can be satisfied to know that God knows what He is doing and has a purpose even for all experiences of evil and suffering in the world. Let's pray. Our great God, as we consider these things this week and next week and really throughout our lives, 
We pray that you would help us. Pray that you would help us to look to Jesus and find a confidence and a hope and a peace that can only be found in him. Lord, true faith, as you tell us, is not full understanding, but rather full trust. Would you give that to us as we look to Jesus, both here in the Word and laid before us on the table as we eat and drink in satisfaction of the goodness of Jesus. Bless us to this end, Lord, as we continue to worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.